The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Kathleen Dellett. She's a professor in the Department of Horticulture at Iowa State University. She held the first land-grant position in organic horticulture, and she has a long list of awards, special recognition, and research papers around organic food and farming. I was especially interested in an article, it was actually a book chapter, that looked at the benefits of organic farming when it came to the impacts on soil, food, and human health. So I thought we would definitely want to have her in to have a conversation. Welcome, Dr. Dellett. Thank you, Melinda. Well, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about horticulture because maybe you could explain what horticulture is and how you became interested in that subject area. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the name horticulture derives from the Latin word hortus, which means garden. So in general, most people associate the field of horticulture with gardening. However, Actually, the official definition is that we study the science of plants grown in an intensive manner. So that would be fruits, vegetables, and ornamental plants. As compared to agronomy, I'm actually in that department too, is uh, where crops are grown more extensively over large acreages like corn, soybean, oats, etc. So what was it that got you interested in this area? Well, I have to attribute my love of farming, gardening to my mother because she grew up on a farm in Minnesota and we always had a huge organic garden in our yard where I grew up. And probably as early as age 16, I started becoming more interested in botany, which was a subject that was studied in high schools where I went, but they didn't have any agriculture. So when I found out you could actually major in agronomy, I was really excited about that. That's what I did my bachelor's degree in. Well, you have received multiple awards and recognitions, including the 2013 College of Agriculture and Life Sciences Outstanding Achievement in Extension and Outreach Award. You have been appointed as section chair for agronomic production systems from 2010 to 2011 with the American Society of Agronomy. And in 2006, you had a gubernatorial appointment as board member of Iowa Prison Industries to provide recommendations on organic farm operations. So you've had a lot of varied experience, and it's not something that I think of with regard to land-grant institutions. You know, we don't really see a lot of emphasis on organic. How did that come to be? You're correct, and I've been charting that since I'm she had this appointment, and it is heartening to see that more universities are getting involved in organic. Because when I first started, I think there were maybe three, and the last survey I did, at least something was going on related to organic at every land grant across the country. So that was really good news. Now, I mean, that varies. Minnesota, for example, and Wisconsin have full-time organic specialists like me, but probably 
find full-time organic specialists at land grants, the, the numbers are probably still less than 10. Is that related to who funds those positions? Well, fortunately, as far as I know, all our positions are funded by the state legislatures. So I wouldn't say in this regard um, those specific positions have anything to do with outside funding. However, your support for your program, your position, as far as hiring staff for your lab and field experience, you would have to get outside funding. And yes, in general, there's always been more funding on the conventional side, but fortunately, again, over the years since I took this position in 97, we've seen it, we've seen an increase in federal funding for organic research, which has really helped mm-hmm. our program and others in the, in the country. Yeah, it's so important from a public health perspective I am an advocate for organic food and farming, but I want to know what you see on the ground level. So why don't you help our listeners understand what is the difference between an organic versus a non-organic farming system? Well, fortunately, organic is defined by law. There's a U.S. law that specifically defines organic, and in general, it's, it's growing without chemicals. But to dig down into that a little further... Everything you use on the organic farm has to be naturally based. So it's easier for me to talk about practices and examples. Great. For example, yeah. <laughs> for fertilizer, chemical or conventional farmers use synthetic fertilizer. And in organic, you can't use any synthetics, so you're using a natural source of fertilizer, which would be compost, manure. You can even make vegetable-based Compost. There are organic fertilizers, commercial organic fertilizers you can purchase, but you have to make sure that they, all the ingredients in them are all completely from nature. And then for pest management, while conventional folks use synthetic pesticides in organic, we use things like prevention. We use resistant varieties and cultivars, and we'll rotate our crops to help avoid pest problems and practices like that. Mm -hmm. One of the traits of organic farming that is very appealing to me has to do with biodiversity. And we do see large acreages of single crops on organic farms. At least that's my impression. Maybe sometimes out in California you might have a large organic vegetable production. But is it required to have a certain level of biodiversity? Yes, I would say so. Because in organic, in order to be certified organic, you have to have a crop rotation plan. And in general, row crops, those large crops, large acreage crops, corn, soybeans, etc., they should not be raised on the same piece of land for more than four out of five years. So that recommendation I just said is not in the rules. It says your crop rotation must be in place to build soils and protect against pest problems. So it's open to depend on your conditions and where you live. But in general, we'll go with, here in Iowa and the Midwest, we'll go with a four, sometimes five crop rotation, corn one year, then soybeans, then oats and alfalfa, then another year of alfalfa. And there's variations within that and bringing in other crops too, like wheat and spelt and red clover, et cetera. So um, there's a lot of variations out there in the crop rotation plans that, the crop rotation scheme that is required for certified organic. A lot of organic guys, I would say most of them, do also use cover crops like hairy vetch and rye and red clover that can be 
planted in between these crops over the winter. Mm-hmm. Or they can be planted for a full season, too. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing improved yields because of that system that is more biodiverse? Yes. As a matter of fact, we do have data showing that the longer rotation, in this case, the rotation of two years of alfalfa, corn, soybean, oats, alfalfa, alfalfa for second year, that has been giving us consistently the highest yields in our study compared to a two-year crop rotation or a three-year crop rotation. And you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but because you're the expert in this area, but my gut tells me that with a greater biodiversity and less toxins, you would be able to attract higher levels of pollinators. So that would also contribute to a greater yield. Is that what you've been witnessing as well? That's a tough one. I have not measured that specifically. I think your hunch is correct, and it stands to reason that if you have more diversity and more flowering crops in your rotation, you're going to bring in more pollinators. But I, I haven't seen that specifically. I've seen studies where they've measured, for example, animal diversity, which is higher on organic versus conventional farms. I'm talking wildlife there, mm-hmm. birds, and definitely soil microbes. But, yeah, I know there's some people that are just starting to look at butterflies and pollinators here on campus and in organic versus conventional farms. So I'll be curious to see you know, if our hunch, both of our hunches on the same level here play out in that. And mm-hmm. there's one more thing I was going to say. It, it, especially in horticultural operations where you'll be able to, some guys have up to 28 crops in their rotation. Wow. Um, you'll, yeah, so you'll be able to get a lot more diversity in a horticultural operation compared to an agronomic one. And in that case, I would imagine you would increase your pollinators even more so. Yeah. I can't help but think that if you are having higher levels of soil microbes, that that would improve the nutrient content of the crops. Have you done any research on that? We have not specifically. I've collaborated on this book chapter with Don Davis at uh, University of Texas, Austin, and he definitely thinks there's a connection between soil quality and food quality, and he studied that a lot more extensively than I have. As you know, it takes a whole food nutrition lab to do those kind of measurements, and we don't have that right here. I could pay someone across campus to do the differences for me, look at the differences for me, but I'd have to put that into a grant in order to get funded. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, there's enough data out there to show that if you do have – very nutritious soils, you're going to have more nutrition in your plants. That just stands to reason. And uh, Don's shown that there's been a tremendous decline in protein, calcium, phosphorus, iron, riboflavin, vitamin C over the past half century. Mm -hmm. And he attributes it to declining soil quality. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting study. Well, and I think that where our fields intersect and why I really wanted to have you on is to have this conversation about the way we produce our food and how that impacts the soil microbes and then looking at what I see as the new frontier in human nutrition, which is how that affects the gut microbes. And surely if we're doing something or if we're applying chemicals that kill soil microbes or impair their ability to function well, I think we would be smart to think that those 
chemicals would also impact the microbes that live in our gut. Yeah, I think your again your hypothesis is has a lot of merit to it. So it'd be neat to follow through. Have you seen or read of anybody doing research on that? Well, that's what I'm most interested in following. I know there has been a poultry study looking at poultry gut microbes and how they are different based on different feeds. But this is the future. This is the new frontier, I think, where our fields will intersect. And it's so important to have the funding to do the research to prove what are now perhaps just hunches or maybe just common sense. Mm-hmm. Sounds true. Well, tell me a little bit more about some of the situations that happen on farms where you've got this organic versus non-organic system where you're applying chemicals. What exactly is going on with the chemicals that are applied? How are they affecting the soil microbes? Right. Well, I'm, I'm working with um, two soil scientists, Cindy Camardella at USDA National Soil Health Lab and uh, Matt Baker, who's also a soil scientist, more like a soil microbiologist. And Cindy has definitely determined higher microbes, microbial populations, beneficial microbial populations in the organic fields versus the conventional fields. She's also determined higher overall soil quality, you know, higher carbon sequestration and potentially mineralizable nitrogen that can feed the next crop, et cetera. Um, Matt is just now looking at the composition of those microbes. And this was only his first year studying it, but uh, he definitely sees differences between the conventional fields and the organic fields, which he thought was really interesting. Of course, I'm chomping a bit going, okay, they're different, but what can you say beyond that? And that's what he'll be doing now in the second year is evaluating the function of those microbes to see if they are, in fact, as we imagine, affecting the plant to provide greater nutrition and growth to the plant. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Kathleen Dellett. She is a professor in the Department of Horticulture. Her area of expertise and research focuses on organic farming systems. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of your research. What are you working on these days? Well, since I'm the only organic specialist here, I have an over the course of the year, probably 10 different projects we are, we're looking at, and they range from, I said, apples to ZMAs, which is a scientific name for corn, because we're looking at comparing organic versus conventional grain crops. As I mentioned, that's our LTAR, Long-Term Agroecological Research Site in Greenfield, Iowa. That's now in its 19th year, comparing organic and conventional and showing similar yields in the two systems, and as I mentioned, higher soil quality in the organic and definitely higher returns, greater economic returns in the organic system. That's the LTAR. That's our big showcase piece. We're also we're looking at organic no-till, which was started by Rodale Institute. And in 2005, they gave us one of their roller crimpers. So we could um, you plant the cover crop in the fall, and then you crush it with this roller crimper in the spring. And then you can come behind it and no-till drill in your soybeans, which is the best way to do it, although we don't have a no-till drill yet to go through it. So we plant with a regular planter and um, getting pretty good yields with that. You don't have to then go in and do any weed management if you have enough biomass from that cover crop to last the whole season. 
So that that's really still in its infancy. We're well, I think we have many years to go yet before we can make recommendations. They've had really good luck with it on the East Coast, like at Rodale, North Carolina, because it's milder climate and that cover crop can grow all winter. It really puts on a lot of biomass in the winter and then they can they can grow a lot longer. So they've been able to do really well with the organic no till, but we're still tweaking it here. And the other tweak that we're looking at is putting in a roller crimper that would also have behind it a type of cutter, cultivator, that would make the trenches or the rows where you would transplant your vegetables into. Italy has a machine like this, and we're trying to build one here to see how we can go with it in our soils. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great that you mentioned that whole idea of no-till, because Every time I have a discussion about the benefits of organic farming with an individual who does not go that route, one of the arguments that I consistently hear is that, well, we're no-till farmers and we're no-till because we can use these chemicals that make it possible. And what I'm hearing you say is that actually there's equipment that allows us to do organic no-till, and that's really perhaps the wave of the future. Well, that's definitely what Rodale thinks, and, and I, I hope it is true. It, like I said, there's a lot of little things we have to tweak with it as compared to chemical no-till where you're just spraying Roundup and then going in and drilling your soybeans, for example. This has a lot more parts to it. Uh, that is growing the cover crop and rolling, crimping it, and making sure your plant are set a certain way, et cetera. Yeah, and then the other argument against the folks that say no-till is the best way to go, chemical no-till is, like I said, Cindy Camberdella has been monitoring the soil for 19 years, and we've been tilling that soil to control our weeds because we're not doing organic no-till on the LTAR site. And she's found higher soil quality, even with the multiple tillage operations we use to control weeds out there. Wow, that is significant. Yeah. Yeah, higher soil quality. To me, it would seem that if you've got higher soil quality, it's sort of a no-brainer that you're going to have better crops and certainly better yields. It's sort of this basis upon which everything else springs forth. But we always have to have science to prove what seems to be common sense. At least that's what it looks like from my side of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's talk a little bit about another piece of research that I saw that was reported in the Des Moines Register, and it was how organic farming can cut nitrate leaching in half. Now, the reason why I'm interested in nitrate leaching is, again, through that public health nutrition lens in that nitrate-contaminated water is extremely dangerous for babies. We've heard of blue baby syndrome, where babies are robbed of oxygen in the blood because of the nitrates. And then I was at a very interesting lecture that Beyond Pesticides, they Beyond Pesticides has a wonderful forum every spring, and there was a gentleman there who has since passed, unfortunately, Lou Gillette. But what he found was that Well, first he said that nitrate was the second biggest pollutant and that it inhibited testosterone production. So if you've got nitrate in your water at U.S. acceptable water limits, that is still too high and it will interfere with normal testosterone production. Very political because of the fertilizer industries, but I'm curious to know what your research found. Sure. Yeah, that's really scary about 
uh, what Dr. Gillette found, and that was in Florida too, right? That's uh, yes. really interesting because, yeah, you don't think of Florida as having big nitrate problems, but apparently they do. I mean, there's a lot of ag there, so I guess. A lot of agriculture, a lot of golf courses. Mm-hmm. And so anywhere where you've got nitrogen fertilizers added, you would expect to see this leaching. True. Right. And so what we are comparing, and again, I'm working with Dr. Cynthia Camardella from USDA and her team there of hydrologists, and we're comparing the nitrates and other materials that are in the water that flow under organic and conventional plots. And it's an elaborate, it actually costs $300,000 in three years to set it up. So I really appreciate USDA's support on this, both from the organic grant perspective and also from USDA supporting Cindy and her staff um, working on the project. And so in these in this tile wall, every plot is um, underlaid with these tiles that lead directly to this sump, and it's the nitrates are measured continuously. And so what they found was, as you mentioned, under the organic plots, there was 50% less nitrate in the tile lines compared to the conventional. So we're saying this is a no-brainer. If you even if you don't go organic, if you put in longer crop rotations than just corn and soy, because that's what we're comparing it to. The organic plots have that four-year rotation, corn, soybean, oats, alfalfa, and alfalfa for a second year. Put in practices like that. Start growing more small grain crops. Start growing more perennials like alfalfa, and you'll bring your nitrate level way down, even Mm -hmm. if you're using synthetic nitrogen. Um, We're using organic sources, manure and compost in the organic plots. But, yeah, I keep asking Cindy, have you gotten any feedback from that? an editorial that ran to my register, and so far she hasn't, which is really surprising to me. I thought she would get attacked, but at the minimum, I thought people would be saying the same thing we're saying. Hey, that sounds like a pretty potential solution there. Yeah, I think it would be important to also link it to the amount of money that cities are having to spend to clean up their water. And I happen Mm -hmm. to know that Des Moines is one of those cities, and I think Iowa in particular, because of the kind of agriculture that you have, is spending a lot of money taking nitrates out of water. And if we could change our farming systems and even have some financial incentives to push farmers to farm in a more environmentally friendly way, maybe we would start seeing some change. Exactly. Yeah, I, I know. Bill Stowe at Des Moines Waterworks, he spoke at our organic conference, and he was saying the reason he had to launch the lawsuit against the water districts that were upstream, that were feeding the Des Moines River where he's pulling the water out of, and it's so polluted, it is because he felt just his hands were tied. He, he's spending so much money cleaning it up that he had to go after something and at least wake people up to the notion that You know, what happens upstream definitely affects us all downstream. Exactly. And not even considering, you know, if we go beyond what happens within our own states, if we go, say, if we follow the Mississippi River watershed all the way down to the Gulf, and we see the kinds of adverse effects that having high nitrogen levels are with regard to the fishing industries down there, I've had some people say to me, I don't know why those fishermen down there aren't suing the farmers upstream because of the contaminated water that they're having to deal with. Yes, I've heard that too. Well, we have a few minutes left. I want to open this up to you a little bit and have you 
Just speak to any issues that you think are important. Pull out anything from your research that you want our listeners to know. Well, thanks, Melinda. You know, it's it's interesting that people say, well, how can you be doing organic research in Iowa when there's just so much chemical farming going on there? And it's true. It's It's very interesting to follow the thread, how it all began, and it really... My position was created as a result of the organic farmers in the state demanding or at least pleading with the dean of the College of Ag here at Iowa State that they create a position because they had so many questions. They just weren't getting any help out in the county. So it was pretty unique that it was a farmer-led operation to get this position in place here. And the support of the farmers has been phenomenal. I, I couldn't do my job without them. They they come up with ideas for research. They offer their farms for research sites. They give me so many good ideas. That I don't think there's a more intelligent group of organic farmers in the country, although I'm sure there's other states who will say the same thing. But any opportunity I can get to thank them, I, I really give them a lot of kudos. Yeah. Well, I think good scientists start at a level of being really keen observers. And when you're out working every day and paying attention to ecological systems and how everything works together, I think you're starting at a much higher level. It seems to me that a lot of the chemicals that were sold to farmers were sold based on, hey, this is an easier approach and you're going to get higher yields. But, yeah, it's not as easy when you have to pay attention to the whole system, but you do get higher yields. And more importantly, I think you're going to get a healthier food system and certainly a healthier population if they're not exposed to these chemicals year after year. True. Yeah, that's what I mean, at one point I was doing a survey of what people's motivations were for getting into organic farming. And certainly family health and safety and farm worker health and safety were right up there at the top. And that is a big motivator. A lot of people that get into organic have had adverse Uh, reaction situations using chemicals on their farm and, you know, want to try to farm without chemicals. So I I think that is a big motivator. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting now is the economic benefit that we're seeing. Harn Soper was just recently featured in an ecological publication where he's got farmland in Iowa and showing that he is making so much more income from his organic crops rather than the conventional or the non-organic crops, and the demand for organic grains is so far above what we're producing, it would seem like this is the path of the future. I agree, yeah. (laughs) That's what we promote through our organic conference and workshops that we hold throughout the year. That, yeah, right, I mean, we've been working with Craig Chase, the Iowa State Farm Management Specialist, and he's been monitoring our costs and returns at the LTAR site for 19 years, and on average, they've been the returns have been twice the conventional, and that's looking at all the cost of production. So, you know, without using synthetic fertilizers, which are heavily dependent on the price of fuel, now they should be lower. But in you know more recent years, it was really high priced, and pesticides, fertilizers, uh, herbicides. You know, all those add into your cost. So even when you're transitioning, you're not getting the premium price because you don't get the premium price till your third year after transitioning. Your return should be good because you're not paying for all those high-priced synthetic inputs. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Dellett, I want to thank you so much for sharing your research and your experiences there at, at Iowa State. 
To close, I want to thank Dr. Dullett very much for being my guest, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, and I will provide a link to your website, Dr. Dullett, for anyone who wants to get in touch with you and learn more. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Melinda. I appreciate it.